Hello, I'm Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast to get you thinking about biblical and historical Christianity, to challenge you to follow Christ, and to inspire you to lead a consecrated life. How did Jews at the time of Jesus understand their relationship to the law? Did they believe in works righteousness, the idea that only by obeying the commandments of Torah could they earn salvation? Did they believe in grace? What did they believe? This is an important question to figure out so that we can understand what the Apostle Paul writes so much about in his epistles. In this episode, Jerry Werewell leads us through this important issue to contextualize the epistles of Paul within their own thought world. Drawing on the work of Christer Stendhal, E.P. Sanders, and James D.G. Dunn, Weirwell presents the view known as covenantal nomism, often associated with the new perspective on Paul. Here now is Interview 36, Paul and Covenantal Nomism, with Jerry Weirwell. Today we're talking about Paul and his teaching about the law and the old perspective and the new perspective and covenantal nomism. And in the studio, we have Jerry Weirwell. Welcome, Jerry. Thanks, Sean. So as it turns out, when I read through large portions of Paul's epistles, like Romans, I notice that he talks about the law a lot. It seems to be one of his main emphases that he's on about. And there is the question of, well, how did he understand the law? And so I'm really interested to, to hear what you have to say and to get some perspective, because I think so often as Christians, Bible-believing Christians, we just jump right from the text to our opinion of what we understand it to mean without considering the fact that there are 20 centuries of other people who have also been reading this, and at least in the last hundred years, there's been a lot of work on the Apostle Paul and how he interpreted the law. So wh- where should we get started today? Well, that's a, that's a good intro there, Sean, because um, Paul has a lot to say about the law, and the, and the law, the law of Moses, uh, played a big part in the uh, a lot of the discussions and and controversies of the early church, uh, you know, in you mentioned his letter to the Romans, and uh, in chapter three of that letter, uh, we come to the this famous passage in verse twenty one. It says, "But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe." for there is no distinction. And then down in verse 27, it says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So just in this one section here, Paul has his eye on uh, what it means to be declared right before God, and the law has come front and center. And I think that what happens is that we, as 21st century readers of Scripture and uh, Westerners, have struggled a little bit with this. And this whole situation has come up 
in light of the Protestant Reformation in the 16th century, where a lot of our understanding in general Christian interpretation has been formulated by a perspective that was initially espoused by Luther, Martin Luther, the great reformer. And uh, Luther's view of Paul and the law is known as what's called the traditional view. And uh, when Luther did his famous exposition on the letter to the Romans, it stemmed from his own personal struggle with uh, a guilt consciousness and his disagreement with the uh, Roman Catholic system that propounded a, a works righteousness type of system that uh, was involved in the selling of indulgences, uh, the need for penance, and the receiving of the merits of the saints. And so Luther's sola fide, his justification by faith alone, uh, this was his anthem against the corrupted church practices that he believed were antithetical to the grace of God uh, as revealed in the gospel. Yeah, I, I remember reading about Luther, and also in uh, one of the movies I saw about him, they portray portrayed this rather well, where you have him there confessing to his priest, and you know he's himself an Augustinian monk, so it's not like mm -hmm. Luther's halfway in the church. I mean, he is all the way in. He's just so concerned that he has forgotten a sin, and he's trying to trying to remember all the sins. Like, I mean, imagine that. If you believe that you had to confess, identify, remember, and confess every sin you've ever committed, what kind of a weight would that put on you? In order to find grace, in order to find forgiveness, um, that would be a lot of work. And so I think Luther, to a large degree, was an extremist. And so what you're saying is that out of that experience, he's reading the New Testament, and he's finding there his own particular solution— for his own worldview, but that might not be the best way to think about things. Yeah, Luther was very preoccupied with his confession, and he'd walk away from confession and then remember even the small, a small infraction that he had forgotten to mention, and then he was stricken with guilt all over again. And so, yeah, out of his own personal struggle came this uh, identification with Paul's gospel of justification by faith, and he held to this very strict dichotomy uh, in interpreting Paul that where he held on, in one hand, righteousness by faith, um, but then he saw Paul having this other idea of righteousness by works. And this, these two categories were represented in Luther's mind under law and gospel in Paul's writings. And so for Luther, the, the law, uh, as he was viewing it in this framework, it demanded that humankind do something in order to earn salvation. But Paul's message of the gospel advocated that a person cannot do anything to earn salvation, and that it comes by, by faith alone. And so Luther was painting a very black and white picture of uh, what Paul was trying to say about the law and the gospel in light of his own personal struggle. Or have you come across the idea of the law as a mirror? That's the idea that the law exists not to show Israel how to live or anything like that, but the law exists to show you how much of a filthy sinner you are and how poorly you measure up to God's standard, which is a very like Reformation flavor to thinking about the law. 
Yeah, that that is part of what Luther saw as the law's function is to show the utter depravity of man. And John Calvin picked that that up and, and furthered it in his institutes as well, that the law basically shows a person uh, just how destitute they are and how far they are from God. So yeah, that's definitely that's definitely part of uh, what Luther saw as well, and they also both Luther and Calvin uh, did have a there was a positive side to the law that espoused that good works or works just in general are advocated in the life of the people of God, but that it had no place in the process of justification or in being declared right as a as a means. Uh, so, though, in one excerpt here from uh, Luther's writings on the purpose of the law, I wanted to read here, and he talks about a, a dual purpose of the law, and he says that there's a double use. One is civil. God hath ordained civil laws, yea, all laws, to punish transgressions. Every law is then given to restrain sin. The first use of laws is to bridle the wicked. Another use of the law is theological or spiritual, which is, as Paul saith, to increase transgressions. That is to say, to reveal unto man his sin, but to the end that God might beat down this monster and this mad beast, I mean the presumption of righteousness and religion. It behooved him to send some Hercules to utterly destroy him, for the law is the hammer of death the thundering of hell and the lightning of God's wrath that beateth to powder the obstinate and senseless hypocrites. Wherefore, this is the proper and absolute use of the law, to terrify and to beat down and rend in pieces that beast which is called the opinion of righteousness. For as long as the opinion of righteousness abideth in man, so long there abideth also in him pride, presumption, security, hatred of God, contempt of his grace and mercy, ignorance. Therefore, the opinion of righteousness is a great and an horrible monster, a rebellious, obstinate, stiff-necked beast. So for the destroying and overthrowing thereof, God hath need of a mighty hammer, that is to say, the law. What, uh, well, I'm, I'm glad he didn't hold back there, Jerry. Uh, <laughs> he really told it like he, like yeah. he was. <laughs> it seems that what he's saying there is that the law is this weapon that God uses to destroy self-righteousness. Yep. Is that fair? Yep. You know, it's interesting. Tim Keller likes to present this view a lot, and he does it in a more 21st century way. And he has this whole idea of the moral performance narrative and how people by default will do the right thing in life over and over. And then because of that, slide into this mindset that says, well, look, I tithed, you know, I, I gave to the church, I evangelized, I shared my faith with people, I came every Sunday, I volunteered, and now I'm praying for a job. So now God owes me to give me the job I'm praying for because I've done all these things according to his righteousness that, you know, what he wants me to do. So now he owes me. And Keller's great on this. He's like, look, that's just not the way it works. It's a grace narrative. It's not a moral performance narrative. Now, as effective as that is psychologically and as true as that may be, that, I think, is what you're going to say, Paul is not talking about that. Mm -hmm. This idea that the law 
that God gave is focused on trying to denounce a certain incorrect justice system. That is Luther's reading through his own personal struggles. And, and that brings us to some, some modern scholarship uh, in the 20th century, uh, dating back to the, the 60s. Uh, there was a professor, uh, Christer Stendahl. He's a, a, a Swedish theologian, professor, I believe, at Harvard Divinity School. And he wrote an influential article back in the 60s called The Apostle Paul and the Introspective Conscience of the West. And in this article, he basically lays out that the West, even beginning back with theologians from the time of Augustine uh, and leading up definitely to Luther, who followed in Augustine steps and Calvin as well, that they look at Paul through the lens of individualistic salvation experience. That is, um, that they look at the law as trying to address how is a person justified. And thus, they, they have all viewed the law as some sort of uh, merit theology, some sort of works-based salvation prescription. Uh, rather than understanding the larger context uh, where Paul was seeking to uh, address the issue of how the Gentiles are to be perceived in relation to Jews, and particularly in relation to the covenant promises that God had made and how then the Jews are, in, are supposed to fit into that program uh, in, the, in the gospel narrative that Christ has now come. Yeah, this, is, this is really a, a hermeneutical key, Jerry, that I see over and over. Instead of reading your own questions and your own world into the text— what you do is you ask one simple question. What did this mean to those who received this when it was written? And if you ask that question first and wrestle with it back there at that time, so if, like, for example, you're reading Deuteronomy, think to yourself, all right, this is the last month of the 40 years of the wandering. We're about to enter the promised land, and now read Deuteronomy. And suddenly you're like, okay, now it makes sense why they're repeating everything. There's a new generation. Of course they're going to get a second law because, like, they're a new generation, and this is this is their time to to receive that. And same same thing with like Romans or Paul Paul's epistles. That rather than say, well, in our time, I don't know, you could pick any issue, homosexuality or tra the transgender issue. That's controversial. That's what people are talking about. So now let's read Paul in light of that, and you're going to end up perceiving him as addressing issues that he wasn't addressing because that wasn't so something that was commonly talked about in his world. I mean, homosexuality, yes, but not still in the same categories that we have today. So the first question is like, what did this mean then? And then the second question, uh, which is the one we all really care about, what is like, how does this affect me now? But unless you figure out what it meant then, you're going to miss the mark here. So you're saying that Stendhal was doing this. He was figuring out, like, what is the first century Jewish mindset towards the law? He was trying to address the mistaken hermeneutic, like you're saying, about uh, that we can't come to the Scripture and interpret the Scripture uh, strictly through our own worldview lens, our current circumstances, our culture. 
uh, and that in a valid interpretation of any literature has to be done based upon the context uh, at the time of composition and the intended uh, audience and reception of that message. Uh, we might call it authorial intent, but there's been some negative criticisms against using that particular terminology. But uh, I think Hirsch, uh, in his book, Validity and Interpretation, is right saying that if a text is to have any meaning at all, that meaning was, was attempted to be given to it by the author. And to seek that meaning is to seek the valid interpretation. And so Stendhal's trying to correct uh, the way that people look at Paul and the law, particularly through a Reformed traditional perspective of Luther, and say, you know, that actually has that doesn't have anything to do with the context in which Paul wrote. That was a, a religious debate of the 16th century, and they were trying to take Paul's words and apply it to that context. Now, that not, that's not necessarily wrong, but that's not a way to then re- interpret backwards Paul's meaning. So Dendal was bringing this up, but that brought uh, scholarship to the particular studies of an individual named Ed Sanders in the mid to late 70s. Um, and he, uh, E.P. Sanders, he was a professor at Duke, I believe, of religious studies. And he wrote a book, a very famous book called Paul on Palestinian Judaism. And in that book, he was like, uh, let's go look at the cultural context particularly in Judaism during Paul's time. He did a survey of, of nearly every available writing from like 200 BC to 200 AD um, from, from Judaism to try to understand the culture into which Paul was speaking and the issues that were present at that time and the perspective. Personally, he was looking for what is the self-understanding of Judaism to which we can try to uh, see once what would Paul be trying to address. I heard once he was questioned by a student who, to whom he responded, well, once you've read all of the relevant literature in Hebrew from that period you just mentioned, 200 before Christ to after, then we'll have the conversation. <laughs> I don't know if that story is apocryphal or not, but it, I mean, it gets at the, the heart of, you know, this guy is doing the nitty gritty work that most of us would not care to wade through hour after hour. Yeah, I read a lot of theology, and to be honest, Paul and Palestinian Judaism was was tough. Like I, I choked through it, and and I skipped significant portions just because it is very tedious. And he goes through and shows all these citations of first hand sources, many of which I'm not familiar with at all. And so it it's a very it's a scholar scholar's work. So a lot of people wouldn't take the time to, to read it. Uh, but right, but even then, you're just reading his distillation. Yeah, I mean, his actual research was way worse than that. <laughs> yeah, but what the the Christian studies, the biblical studies field gained from it was that he demonstrated that a first century Judaism understanding was much different than the uh, 16th century Reformation understanding that they were attributing to to Jews and the law, and that all of the the writings that he surveyed that they were pointing to that the Jews looked at themselves uh, not under a works based righteousness paradigm, uh, rather that the Jewish religion was one of coming out of and instituted by God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and in him choosing uh, Israel uh, to be his people. And so they looked at themselves as being uh, in, in this covenant relationship with God, not because they deserved it or not because they could earn their way into it, but simply God chose them through what could be called election, that just uh, God's uh, 
wisdom and in his plan and purposes for for his creation chose a, a certain people the sons of of jacob through whom he was going to display his goodness and his mercy and grace and his justice and that <clears throat> there th that this nation of israel would be a, a light to the rest of the world to uh and and would be a, a priesthood in service to the rest of the world for god and so Sanders kind of, he, he does this dramatic shift in perspective away from this 16th century religious debate of uh, Protestant Catholic theology and, and shifts it back to the first century cultural context. So he's, he's like, there's, there's a different religious uh, context going on back when Paul was writing. And that is the framework through which we need to understand Paul's writings in the New Testament and what he's addressing. And so then was born from that this term of understanding the function of the law in God's uh, program of redemption as being this thing that was termed covenantal nomism. And, and that's just a fancy term for basically saying that there was a need to have certain behavioral standards in place in order to demonstrate and maintain a person to be in a covenant relationship with God. So just summarizing a bit, we have the idea from Luther that the law is a hammer and its purpose by God, ordained by God, is to destroy our, our self-righteousness, our pride, our sense of being able to make ourselves right with God, make ourselves right with God. Then you have the perspective that... that, that that's a very... Yeah, Luther had a very negative very negative. It was very pessimistic. Feeling. And then you have the, the perspective that the law was, its only purpose was to sort of like keep Israel alive until Christ. And that it's just, it's just sort of like the scripture is uh, that it's a pedagogos, it's a guardian. Older translations misinterpret that as a tutor. But, uh, you know, it's a guardian to keep, to keep the children of Israel sort of like alive long enough for Christ to be born and do his thing, which again, is a very negative view. And along with that perspective, you have a lot of folks who, reading Paul, they're like, okay, well, Paul is warning and warning and warning us against this moral performance strategy of salvation, which is, if you do the right thing, if you, if you obey God, then God will save you. But what E.P. Sanders is saying is that, look, the law is actually an act of God's grace, which just like destroys the old every one of those old categories. Yeah. So if the law is itself grace, like God graciously gives it to the people, then it's not a matter of earning anything, because that's an opposite concept, right? Yeah, and Sanders details this in in his explanation on covenantal nomism, and just to give you kind of a, a summary of, of the way he describes it, he says that the the type of religion that's described by this covenantal nomism. Um, as it's common to Judaism, um, in an, as it appears in the literature that he considered, he says that it's a pattern or structure of this covenantal nomism is this. Uh, one, that God has chosen Israel. And two, that he's given Israel the law. And the law implies both three, that God's promise to maintain the election and four, the requirement to obey. And five, that God rewards obedience and punishes transgression six that the law provides for means of atonement and atonement results in seven 
maintenance and reestablishment of the covenant relationship, and then finally eight, that all those who are maintained in the covenant by obedience, atonement, and God's mercy belong to the group which will be saved. An important interpretation of the first and last points is that election and ultimately salvation are considered to be by God's mercy rather than human achievement. And so he's trying to reorient the idea of what what is the law in in the Jewish context of Paul's day? And covenantal nomism establishes that Israel, the Jews, are God's chosen people and whom God entered into a covenant agreement with at Sinai, and according to which specific behavioral requirements and worship rituals were stipulated in order to maintain that covenant relationship. And within those stipulations, a means of atonement was provided for receiving forgiveness and to repair any breaches in uh, the covenant requirements or failure to maintain covenant status. And I think that uh, this is also borne out in the way that he describes the Jewish rabbinical view uh, of the first century, that they believed in the enduring validity of the covenant relationship God had made with Israel, and they did not count or weigh merits against demerits uh, for atonement, but rather believed that God had provided salvation for all faithful members of that covenant. Yeah, the text that comes to mind for me is in Deuteronomy 7, where it says in verse 6, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. And then it says, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all the peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath which you swore to your forefathers, the Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery. So what I see there is a lot of grace. You know, God doesn't look at all the nations and say, well, this one over here is doing pretty well. I think I'll work with them. He's, he says, look, this is all to do with, you know, essentially Abraham's response to his original call. And then all these years later, it's like, you guys are better than the other nations, but it's because I love you and I have chosen you and I'm going to work with you. And uh, so that to me, that to me is in a nutshell, the doctrine of grace, anyhow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, of course, these categories are, are interesting how they, they mix together because we're talking about how, in, specifically in Deuteronomy 7, uh, how therefore they should keep his commandments. That's their very next verse. It says, Know therefore that the Lord your God, Yahweh your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him and keep his commandments. And so the idea is like God set his favor on us as a people. Uh, they, they were to think this way. God has set his favor on us as a people. Therefore, he loves us. We should love him and keep his commandments. And so this, there's no idea of like proving I'm a real Israelite here. Yeah, there, there's the distinction that the law didn't establish the covenant. God made the covenant and then gave the law. And there's a distinction in, in salvation or, or soteriological understanding in the Jewish eyes that the election for God to choose them had nothing to do with, with them deserving it or, or being better, like you said, than any of the other nations. Uh, God decided to choose Jacob rather than Esau to be his people in order to bring about his uh, purposes and plans of, of redeeming uh, creation. Uh, and so, therefore, there's no human efforts involved in the covenant God made, but God then gave requirements 
of that covenant that if you're going to be my people, these are the things that I expect of you. These are things that I want you to do. This, this is ultimately my will to uh, be enacted uh, and to be demonstrated in the world until the one that I promised all these things would come. And that's what Paul gets into in, in Galatians 3, which we will maybe talk about later or the next episode uh, that gets into more like, so how does the law then interface with the gospel? But I want to kind of bring things back here a little bit more to one more major voice in this progression of, of scholarship on uh, looking at uh, Paul, the law, and, and first century Judaism. Uh, and this individual is uh, James Dunn, uh, J.D.G. Dunn. He wrote a famous book in, in 1990, I believe it was, um, Jesus, Paul, and the Law. And uh, the thing that Dunn remarks on in this book that is so significant, he looks back and he says, and this is in reference to Christer Stendhal's article that we, we talked about previously. He says, if Stendhal cracked the mold of 20th century re- reconstructions of Paul's theological context by showing how much it had been determined by Luther's quest for a gracious God, Sanders, E.P. Sanders, has broken it altogether by showing how different these reconstructions are from what we know of first century Judaism from other sources. We have all been guilty of modernizing Paul. But now Sanders, in his book, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, has given us an unrivaled opportunity to look at Paul afresh and to see Paul properly within his own context, that is, to let Paul be himself. And so the traditional perspective looks at Judaism and the law um, from the Reformed view of like Luther as like this cold, calculating, very legalistic system of works righteousness where salvation's earned by the merit of faithfully doing what the law requires. And Dunn is saying that Stendhal uh, made a crack in that idea, but then Sanders basically obliterated it and showed that that was a false understanding of what Paul was trying to get at. And so while Sanders was focused on this discrepancy between the traditional view of Judaism and the law and uh, the view of uh, first century Jewish writings and also this distinction in Paul uh, that Paul was more interested in defending the gospel against works-based righteousness ideology, uh, Dunn then goes further in his book, uh, Jesus, Paul, and the Law, to demonstrate that Paul's thought and his arguments, especially in the letter to the Galatians, it even presupposes the covenantal nomism of Sanders and shows the continuity in salvation history between Judaism and the Christian faith. And Dunn places Paul's thought squarely within the context of covenantal Judaism of the first century. And he even makes appeals to the Jewish sensibilities of how the law was supposed to work that they already understood themselves working within. And the reality and attempt to kind of take that premise and then use it to then argue for the legitimacy of faith in Christ as something that is distinct in God's program from the law, but not against. When you say not against there, what do you mean by that? So not against meaning that the whole idea that Dunn was trying to ar- that it was trying to argue for and has argued at great length in his writings on the new perspective was that the law was not something that was against the promises of God in the sense that the promises that God gave to Abraham preceding the law as, as uh, Paul describes in Galatians 3, that these promises were not something that the law then was enacted to bring about. Uh, 
And so it wasn't. And so then when Paul says, is the law uh, contrary to the promises, he says, absolutely not. You know, it's not that the law was to negate the promise. That wasn't the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law was to be this intermediary institution that God established in order to bring his people from his election of, of Israel all the way to the time when the promised seed that from the prophecy that God gave to Abraham back in Genesis, when that seed would come. And that ultimately what the law was trying to do in God's people, that that is being fulfilled in the coming of Christ and in those who put their faith in Christ. And so then Paul goes into this big discussion then in Galatians 3 on, well, then let's talk about, well, how does the law then fit into that picture? That God's program to bring about redemption was never meant to be through the law because the law could never achieve that. Um, and we're getting a little bit into the theology that I'd like to reserve um, for, for later. But let me uh, say one more thing here is that in Dunn's assessment of, of uh, you know, when Paul talks about uh, being justified, that Paul's not talking about uh, God's initiatory action, but is rather talking about God's acknowledgement of somebody who has entered into a covenant relationship with him, which is done not only by the forgiveness of sin, but also by them being characterized uh, by whatever marks out a person in that community. Now, in covenantal nomism, a person that is marked out as part of the people of God is an, a, a law observer. The law was designed to be this sort of uh, boundary marker or identity marker that demonstrated uh, that somebody demonstrated to say, I'm in this covenant relationship with God because I'm doing those things that identify me as a, a member of his people. Yeah, I think of the law to, to a large degree as social engineering, where God is working with a people. He's bringing them out of various competing ways of thinking, whether Egyptian, uh, Code of Hammurabi, um, Hittite culture, you know, the, the various cultural options for like being a people and for having justice and for dealing with poverty or kings or whatever, you know, I mean, there's just an incredible amount of state and social engineering, moral engineering, health, you know, I mean, all the different components of Torah that we see here. And yet at the same time, God has a very clear purpose of establishing certain parameters so that his people would be separate, so that his people would have more of a difficult time syncretizing with the other religions, the Canaanite religions and the surrounding nations. So, for example, uh, kosher food restrictions, Leviticus 11, makes it hard to have table fellowship with the Philistines or the Ammonites, right? Because pigs are, you know, kind of like an obvious choice for people because they're easier to deal with. They eat like everything. They're cheaper, <laughs> in a sense, than to deal with a cow, which needs more space and a more restricted diet. You need to have, especially in a desert part of the world, you need to have more grass and so on. So if they're going to be served pork now, that now the Israelite is sort of like excluded from that. And then, you, therefore, they're less likely to participate in the idol worship and getting their religion all mixed in with the true faith that God has given through Moses. So we could talk about the law for a long time as far as like, well, what was God up to? What was, what were his intentions? And like, we see some explicit statements like over and over and over, I am holy, you shall be holy. 
you know, I mean, that's pretty clear that God wants his people to be separate, that they, they would be with him. We see very clearly also in Leviticus that God, and in the second half of Exodus, that God sets up the worship system so that he can be in close proximity, so to speak, we can at least say that spiritually, close proximity to his people, and that the Holy of Holies, the holy place, the courtyard, later on in the temple, you have even more separations installed with these different walls and balustrades, so that the people would recognize and treat God as holy, and so that he wouldn't destroy them. <laughs> so, you know, I think there's there's so much to it, but the question before us here is not so much like all of that as it is, what's Paul's point about the law? Is it that hey, this thing really was oppressive and difficult, and it's just terrible. Let's get rid of it. Is it that the law is a mirror to show us that we're all worthless maggots, and that's its only point is to make us repent? Is it something that is is done away with? Is it still in force? And so these are all issues that I think we need to wrestle with here, and I, I think we'll be able to get into those next time. Yeah, I have two things, I think, to wrap up our time here together with. And one is that justification by faith is actually not a novel concept of the gospel. And that's a misconception also stemming from Reformed theology of, of the uh, 16th century. And, and Dunn says it really well in this way. Uh, he says that Paul's denial that justification is from works of law is more precisely a denial that justification depends on circumcision or on observation of the Jewish purity or food taboos. Uh, we may justifiably deduce, therefore, that by works of law, Paul intended his readers to think of particular observances of the law like circumcision and the food laws. But why these particular works of the law? Well, from the broader context provided for us by Greco-Roman literature of the period, we know that these observances were widely regarded as characteristically and distinctively Jewish. It is clear, in other words, that these observances in particular functioned as identity markers and they served to identify their practitioners as Jewish. They were the particular rites which marked out the Jews as that uh, peculiar people. They functioned as badges of covenant membership. A member of the covenant people was, by definition, one who observed these practices in particular. Against the traditional view of Paul, Dunn, in, according to the new perspective here, is advocating that Paul was thinking in terms of actions that are in conjunction with the covenant, that is, works done in obedience to the covenant, whereas the traditional view saw Paul as coming against legalism and that the Jews themselves were seeking to procure God's favor uh, and also that they were seeking to try to find a means by which they might be justified before God on the basis of performing certain works. And so contrary to that, this new perspective, uh, it reorients readers of Scripture to understand Paul as addressing the Jewish understanding that law observance was simply the rightful expression of their covenant relationship with God. And so Paul is speaking specifically in Jewish categories here of this covenant theological construct where works of the law are not some action-based means of sequestering God's approval, but rather are these identity markers showing that they are members of God's covenant people. And therefore, Paul's focus is not on defining the means of justification for an individual, 
but redefining the relationship between Jew and Gentile with respect to God's covenant with Israel that has now been fulfilled in the Christ event, producing this new covenant and new people of God that have both Jew and Gentile together. Right. I mean, that's really the key factor there, both Jew and Gentile together. Because what I was saying before about Leviticus and this whole holiness separation from the nations idea is that God wants to preserve his people as unique so that they don't end up intermixing and even just marriage. You're you're not allowed to marry certain people groups in the law. So you have that. And now the Christ event is so big Mm -hmm. that it's sort of like summed up everything that came before it. He's the representative Israelite who keeps the law perfectly but then it also it allows the for the inbreaking of this sort of like eschaton if we could put it that way where gentiles are now also joining into the covenant community and so now the big question is like how in the world are we going to do that and that's like a big issue in galatians 1 right where the table fellowship issue comes up and you have paul and peter and uh, we can look at that later but i mean it's like how do we do this jew and gentile thing the obvious answer is to make all the Gentiles Jews. And that's exactly what Paul doesn't say. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's like the opposite of what he he's saying God is, is doing. And that was the Acts 15 council. Like, how do we deal with these Gentiles? Even James is on board. And he's like, no, th- these Gentiles, just give them a couple of these rules here, and then boom, that's it. They're part of the covenant community. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely right. And I think out of this entire episode, as we draw to a close here, I think the one warning that... Uh, Dunn gives that I would say would be the takeaway message from all of this is that uh, when he says like to ignore this fundamental feature uh, of Israel's self-understanding of its covenant status to neglect the first century Jewish context to which Paul is writing he says is to put in jeopardy the possibility of properly having historical exegesis and even far worse than that he says that to start our exegesis from the Reformation presupposition that Paul was attacking the idea of earning God's acquittal, uh, the idea of meritorious works, is to set the whole exegetical endeavor off on the wrong track. And so, as we talked about from the beginning, this is the whole purpose of, uh, of this endeavor in, in biblical scholarship is to try to correct a, a misunderstanding, a, a false hermeneutic on understanding Paul, not in terms of a 16th century or even a 4th century with Augustine, but to go back to the 1st century and be like, why was Paul bringing this up and how was he talking to these Jews within their current context of and their religious understanding of themselves? And I think you've done that. Thank you so much for being our guide here. This is an important subject because those of us who are, are reading the New Testament, so much of it is written by the Apostle Paul, and so much of Paul's epistles do address issues related to the law, and issues related to the inclusion of the Gentiles. So this is not a side issue. It was a major vein within the New Testament that needs to be carefully considered and understood in, a, in its proper context. So thanks, Jerry. Indeed. Yeah, thank you, Sean. Well, I hope that overview was helpful to help you understand how Jewish people at the time of the writing of the New Testament thought about the law and how this can help us understand the New Testament within its own time frame before jumping to today and asking questions that are important for us as well. And stay tuned for next week where we'll have part two where 
where we'll, we'll go through Galatians and show how this works, somewhat in response to Calcano's position previously laid out, but not directly. Also, if you are interested in other interviews with Jerry Weirwell, he's done quite a few, and they're, they're all excellent, really. So check that out. I have a link in the show notes for this episode. Before wrapping up, I did want to read out some feedback because we've been getting a lot of feedback. A lot's been going on. On, for example, interview 33, Can You Lose Your Salvation with Dan Gallagher. A lot of people have been downloading that. A lot of people have been listening to that from different sides of the fence. And so we've had some criticisms on the comments for that section as well as very encouraging remarks. For example, James T. says, What a sad doctrine to be deceived into believing. Uh, Now, it's not clear (laughs) if James T. is saying that it's sad to believe you're once saved, always saved, or sad to believe that you have to persevere in your salvation. So uh, I don't have really much to say on that. Miranda writes, Once saved, always saved is not a doctrine that has a firm foundation in Holy Scripture. If a Christian, after further Bible study, still wishes to believe in it, that is his or her choice, but it would be wisdom not to preach it. Mary writes, I'm amazed that some people are able to trust in their own flesh and works for salvation. Jesus Christ died once for all sins, past, present, and future. The crucifixion was an ugly, painful ordeal, not something to be trifled with. Believe what you wish, you will anyway, but how dare anybody judge another's salvation? It's our righteousness through Christ that God respects, not our own flesh regarding salvation. Just in response to Mary here, I'm not quite sure where she's coming from. I'm not aware of any group, Christian group whatsoever, that trusts in their own flesh and works for salvation. So far as I know it, all Christian groups trust in what Christ has done on the cross for salvation. The question is whether or not there's any responsibility attached to that. And I would say that based on Gallagher's work here and many other verses in the New Testament, that there are quite a few warning scriptures that say very emphatically, do not be deceived. You cannot go on sinning and expect to find salvation in the kingdom. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, Ephesians 5, 5, and many others that specify warnings. And then additionally, those that have conditions, for example, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3, or Colossians 1, 23, where it says, if you continue in the faith, then you will find ultimate redemption and salvation. So Mary, I'm not, I'm not sure if that's your point of view or not, but uh, at least all Christians that I know agree that our own flesh is not capable of earning salvation. But uh, thanks for writing in. I appreciate that. On interview number 35, uh, which was from last week, should Messianic Jews keep Torah with Daniel Calcano? I had quite a lengthy comment by Sean Holbrook, which I'll just I'll just read out here. He says he quotes First Corinthians eleven one and says, "Imitate me, just as I also imitate Christ." Then he goes on. You remember that infamous phrase back in the nineteen nineties? WWJD? What would Jesus do? Yeah, that one. Ha <laughs> ha. That one is the phrase that got me thinking, though. He goes on, it was one of the same reasons that really got me to start studying biblical Unitarianism when I was a Trinitarian. Jesus clearly has one God, so those who follow him should too. Right. Is that far-fetched? 
For that same reason, I began to challenge my views of the Torah, which were formerly like yours, Sean, since Jesus kept the Torah, as you admitted clearly in this discussion, to be sinless. So can it be wrong to do what Jesus did or does? Well, no, of course not, even as a Gentile. And don't think it came easy. No, no. My first challenge came from Matthew Jansen, who would be another great knowledgeable interviewee on this subject and preterism, if you're looking for more. He offered me a few of his books freely, and my initial thoughts were, I'm going to correct this guy's views on the Torah. I was wrong. His book set me off into more and more studies over the past few years into the Torah, and more lately on and off preterism, even though he wasn't a preterist at the time. I think you are already aware of some of this from our prior discussions, though, but the simple phrases are what brought me to check my views more. It can't be wrong to do what Jesus did, can it? And then he talks about how he would really like to get together with Daniel and talk more about these issues, especially Acts 15. And then he concludes, Thank you for offering Daniel the opportunity to voice something like this, though, Sean. I really appreciate it because I've still been in limbo on a lot of these topics, and it was great to hear a good dialogue on the subject of Torah observance from another perspective. I hope everyone can be open to hearing this type of information because, well, WWJD. Sean, thank you for this lengthy comment and your engagement. Uh, It's just such a pleasure to have you so involved in the community here. And as I said in the interview, I mean, I didn't really argue back much against what Daniel said here, but the case is not really whether or not Jesus kept the Torah. That's totally non-controversial. The issue is, does Paul and do the rest of the New Testament writers teach that the law is an old covenant, an old way of relating to God, and that we have a new covenant now that has brought the old to an end and been ratified on the cross so that the old is now obsolete? That's really the question, and uh, for me personally, a lot of that understanding comes from Hebrews especially, where in chapter 8 and chapter 10, it seems pretty clear to me that the new covenant is a current reality. I would say that if the new covenant is not fully in effect right now, then we are under the Old Covenant, and then the position that Gentiles don't need to keep the law is absolutely confusing. So I would say either we're under the Old Covenant or we're under the New Covenant, and whichever one we are, all the people of God are. I don't don't buy into this uh, separating the people of God into different groups. Uh, It sounds very dispensationalist to me, But um, I might be wrong on this, so please point out where I'm wrong. I think also in our next episode, some of this will get laid out as well as far as what Galatians is saying, because there is a strong rebuke there to a Jew for holding to Torah observance when he should have realized that this sort of thing is no longer necessary. But anyhow, we'll, we'll get back into that next week. Thanks, Sean, for writing in. And uh, as far as Matthew Jansen goes, he's somebody that I've had contact with for, pff, I don't even know, maybe a decade or more now. He's a wonderful brother, uh, but we do disagree on this particular issue um, and also on the divorce issue. He has a, a very unusual position on that that I could not find anyone else holding to. That doesn't mean it's wrong. It's just uh, kind of a... Uh, an unusual position on it. And I enjoy dialoguing with him. I think some of his work is very good. His work on the dating of the crucifixion, the resurrection 
is from what I can tell very quality. Uh, he has a very honest heart and I've heard him in debates before and he is a very generous and gracious person. Uh, however, I do disagree with his take on keeping the law. I think this is pretty clear from the New Testament that it's no longer required uh, for anyone, but certainly not for Gentiles, as it seems like the rest of us pretty much agree. I think Jansen might disagree on that. I'm not really sure. But uh, yeah, I'll keep an eye out for him, and maybe we can have him on for a more extensive dialogue. And then a last uh, couple of comments on the biblical somatology paper that I put out for the theological conference. Somebody called Pohl, P-O-L, says, Outstanding. And then quotes James 3.17, The wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceful, gentle, obedient, full of mercy, good fruits, non-judgmental, without hypocrisy. Felina writes, and this one just came in today, In reading your paper, I definitely connected with my life at work, with my coworkers, the acceptance of homosexuality, transgenderism, hookup culture, and body image. I've grown numb to a lot of it as a way to maintain good work relationships and not cause a stir. I am confronted with having accepted that the emperor is not naked. I'm inspired to change that. Thank you. Yeah, Felina, I mean, as far as the workplace goes, you really do have to figure out how to best navigate that. It's probably not practical or livable to pipe up every time somebody says something you disagree with. But I think, at least in America, it'd be nice to have a little space uh, for tolerance for Christians, tolerance for Bible-minded folks to be able to hold to their convictions in an authentic manner. That same respect that is being demanded by others would also be extended to Christians and that we would be able to shine as a light. Uh, Because, look, the Christian way of living is time-tested, it's transcultural, and it is designed by God for human flourishing Uh, at least in ideal cases, obviously persecution and genetic problems or trauma can get in the way of that. But generally speaking, it is the best way to live because it comes from God. So thanks so much for writing in. If you haven't yet, check that out, Biblical Somatology. I've got the full paper there. It's 20 pages long. If you're not into reading so much, I also have a video of it on the Restitutio YouTube channel. And that's about an hour long with the slides mixed in. So take a look at that. Love to hear more of your thoughts on what the Bible says about the body and how we as Christians should be engaging in our culture and with our friends and with our family and and our children and reaching out to others also with a Christian worldview. So one last thing just before I wrap up, I wanted to mention to you that I have just finally finish recording a an extensive seven-part debate on the subject of Calvinism versus Arminianism. So I will be starting that in a couple of weeks, but uh, it's I'm really excited about it. It's Jacob Rohr versus Blake Courtright, and Jacob takes the Arminian position, Blake takes the Calvinist position, and they have a very respectful dialogue on the subject, and we take each one of the different components of Calvinism and give it a full episode. So stay tuned for that. It'll be coming out in a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.